Nat King Cole is one of my favorite singers and not for chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Though I wouldn't mind if Jack Frost nipped a little at my nose right now. It's actually for a song called Orange Colored Sky. It's one of my favorites. So here's the story as Nat tells it. I was walking along, minding my business, when out of an orange colored sky, flash, bam, alakazam, wonderful you came by. I was humming a tune, drinking in sunshine, when out of that orange colored view, flash, bam, alakazam, I got a look at you. One look, and I yelled, Timber! Watch out for flying glass because the ceiling fell in and the bottom fell out. I went into a spin and I started to shout, I've been hit. This is it. This is it. I was walking along, minding my business when love came and hit me in the eye. Flash, bam, alakazam out of an orange colored sky. Poor Nat. You know, helpless victim. Life just happened to him while he was attempting to just mind his own business. You and I see ourselves sometimes as living a flash, bam, alakazam life, right? We're attempting only to mind our own business when life happens to us. And so we, too often see ourselves as helpless victims, acted upon instead of acting. But we know, we need to know this morning that we are not passive victims. Instead, you and I are called to be intentional warriors. You and I are called to fight the good fight of faith. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we return once again to Deuteronomy chapter 33. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to take those and turn to Deuteronomy 33. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And once you've found your place, let's stand together so that we can hear read together the word of the living God. Exodus 33, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. And now verse 12. About Benjamin he said, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you once again to open your word to us. Father, apart from the work of your spirit, we can't understand your truth. But with your spirit, Lord, we have understanding. And by the power of your spirit, change can come to our lives. So we ask now that your spirit would join your truth in us. Change would take place, Lord so that we become more and more the people that you have called us to be. 
So we do more and more the things that you have called us to do. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. You be seated. This morning we're going to look at the blessing that Moses gives to Benjamin. Benjamin, the son of Jacob, after whom this tribe gathered on the plains of Moab is named, was the baby of the family. He was the second of two sons born to Rachel, the wife that Jacob really loved more than his other wife Leah or more than either slave girl that both of his wives had given to him. Now, as you know, his true favorite son was Joseph. Even though Joseph was way down in the birth order, he was Jacob's favorite son. And you remember that elaborate coat of many colors that Jacob gave to Joseph. Now, this is an aside, okay? This is a freebie. Don't give up if you have a messed up, dysfunctional family. This is some messed up junk here. You know what? <laughs> but God works in the midst of dysfunction. Marital dysfunction, parenting dysfunction, the dysfunction between siblings that drove them to, 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 to murder. And so we know the promise of God in Romans 8.28 is true. God does work all things together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jacob loved the Lord, no doubt. Jacob was serving the purpose of God, no doubt. And so God worked all this mess together for good. So the Lord can do the same for you. Keep loving him first. Keep loving him best. Keep seeking his purpose for your life and see what he will do. Now, that's the freebie. Back to Benjamin. After Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, they told their father, as you know, that Jacob had been killed, that Joseph had been killed. And so then Benjamin became the favorite son. When a great famine came on the land, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt where they could buy grain and bring it back to him. He sent all of his sons to Egypt except one. Which one didn't go? Benjamin. Oh, sweet, precious Benjamin. And why does Jacob keep Benjamin behind? Scripture says Jacob kept him behind because he feared that harm might happen to him. So when the older brothers get to Egypt and they encounter Joseph, they don't recognize them, but Joseph gives them the grain. He keeps one brother named Simeon back and he says, now you return. You go get your brother Benjamin and bring him back to me. The sons go and they report to Jacob. All that has been said to them. And and when Jacob hears the report, he says, My son shall not go with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. The only one left. Nine boys lined up in front of him. And yet he says that Benjamin is the only one left. More dysfunction. But in any case, Jacob says Benjamin is the only one left, and he continues, If anything should happen to him, On your journey, you would send this grieving, white-haired man to his grave. Are you kind of getting the feeling of of how Jacob feels about Benjamin? And so he attempts to protect him, to shield him, 
to keep him out of the way of any potential danger. And I'm not faulting Jacob for those feelings. We have those feelings about ourselves, right? And if you're here this morning and you're a parent, in some way you have these same feelings about your own children. You want to keep them close. You want to keep them safe. You want to keep them away from potential harm. Do you remember those disgusting ball pits they used to have in restaurants like McDonald's, excuse me, restaurant, fast food places like McDonald's? You know, those pits always seem to be full of children with green 11s. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> and dirty diapers. But there they are, playing in the pit, rolling around in the pit, tossing the balls around in the air with hands that have just wiped their noses. And then, before you realize it, your own child has escaped your grasp. And they're headed straight for the pit. And you run after them. But before you can catch them and reestablish your grip, they dive headfirst into the ball pit, right? And after being submerged in those balls for what seems like an eternity, then they emerge triumphantly, holding slightly green slimy balls over their head. And you wish in that moment that you were a superhero and that your power was the ability to create a force field, right? A force field around your child to protect them from all those nasty germs. A force field to protect your child from all potential harm and danger. Well, there's a little bit of Jacob in all of us, right? And so the blessing that Moses bestows on Benjamin, it seems fitting. Look at the blessing again in verse 12. Moses says, Let the beloved of the Lord rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long, and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Perfect blessing for Benjamin, right? Beloved, absolutely secure, yes, everything that was wanted for Benjamin. The Lord is his shield, yes. Even the image evoked in the last line of this blessing. That, Jacob will, that Benjamin will rest between the shoulders of the Lord. How many of you have carried a child on your back? You know, when you carry a child on your back, where does their head rest? Between your shoulders, right? And so the promise of the presence of the Lord and the protection of the Lord sounds perfect for one like Benjamin, who wasn't allowed out of the house. And it sort of fits our idea of when the blessing of the Lord's presence is most and best experienced. We sometimes think it's experienced best when we're all alone, maybe in the morning, safe in our home. Bible open, cup of coffee in our hand. Or we think we experience the presence of the Lord best on that mountaintop experience when we retreat from everything else. And for sure, the Lord meets us in those times. For us, morning, coffee, quiet time, mountaintop retreaters, it's easy for us to imagine that we experience the presence of the Lord and the protection of the Lord 
most and best when we have withdrawn from the world and its conflicts and its battles. And we're very quick to point to Jesus and say, oh, look, Jesus got away. Jesus got alone where he could spend time in the presence of his Father in prayer. And that's true. And so we could stop here. And we might feel called to a force field kind of life for ourselves and for those we love. We could say, stay safe, stay protected, stay out of harm's way. Amen. Let's go home. Who thinks we're going to do that? We can't do that. Because if we did that, we would not do justice to this blessing that we have before us. And we would miss the true call of God for our lives. It is It's true that this blessing speaks of the protection of the Lord and the security given by the Lord and the constant presence of the Lord. It's all here. The question is, where will Benjamin experience all of these blessings? And that's a vital question. We must answer it. And in order to answer it, we go back again, as we have the previous two Sundays, to the original blessing that Jacob gave to his sons. It's found in Genesis chapter 49, verse 27. And remember this. Jacob's parenting decisions may not have been inspired by God, but the words of his blessing were. And here's his blessing. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. So just when we're here thinking... Baby the family, soft, overprotected, hiding behind mama's skirts. We're a little jolted by this blessing, right? Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. He devours his prey and divides the plunder. Plunder, of course, is the reward of battle, right? When the battle is over, when the victory is won, to the victor belongs the spoils. So here again this week. We have a blessing that has a a battle or a military context to it. Benjamin will be an aggressive warrior. So Benjamin's blessing, the presence of the Lord, the protection of the Lord, it's for him while he is in battle. There's an alternate translation for the last part of this blessing about the shoulders And it reads this way, and between his weapons, he dwells. And the reason for that is blades, as in shoulder blades, is taken to mean blades, as in sword blades. Saying that Benjamin's place will be in battle. But in battle, he will experience the rest and the security of the Lord. Here's what Peter Craigie writes in his commentary. Benjamin's safety and security were not to be a result of the tribe's refusal to enter in the arena of battle. The security of the tribe would be found in the encompassing presence of God, which would be experienced most vividly in the midst of battle. It would be in battle that Benjamin would be blessed and made safe. And so the word for Benjamin is not retreat. Instead, it's advance. The word for Benjamin is not withdraw. The word instead 
is engaged. You and I don't get to leave here this morning thinking that we can put a force field around ourselves or around the ones we love. We, we must leave here this morning knowing that it's in the midst of battle that we will experience the presence and the protection of the Lord. And that probably means that we're going to have to get over ourselves and our tendencies to be like Jacob, to withdraw, to protect ourselves and others because that's the natural tendency of our hearts. Think of the apostle Peter. Clearly, I think we would all identify him as the bravest of all the disciples, the boldest of all the disciples, and definitely the most brash of all of them. But even Peter, in his bravery and his boldness and his brashness, he wants to protect. He wants to flee battle. He wants to dwell in a place of safety. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter makes his great confession. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Yes, Peter was right in that. He was just wrong in his understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah. And from that moment on, from the time of that confession... Scripture tells us that Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day he would be raised to life. So when, Peter, when Jesus says that, you know the story, Peter takes him aside, takes him by the arm. Get over here, Jesus. And he begins to rebuke him. Please imagine Peter rebuking Jesus. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And so you see the Jacob tendency in Peter, attempting to protect Jesus, to set him aside. He must not suffer, and he certainly must not die. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, what did he say? Get thee behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. To me, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Because Jesus knows the way ahead for him. It's a way of battle. It's a way of conflict. Jesus knows that his future is not living on a mountaintop. He knows it's not one of drawing away from the world and living in safety, isolated and protected by a force field. Jesus knows he must engage in battle. And let's not be too quick to set aside Jesus' reaction to Peter in this moment. He compares Peter, a disciple, his friend, one he loves dearly. He compares him to Satan. Satan, the one who opposes the work of God. Satan, the one who opposes the kingdom of God and the love of God and the grace of God and the compassion of God and the wisdom of God and the justice of God. Satan opposes every bit of it. His entire existence is one of opposition to God. And here Jesus compares Peter to Satan. It's how vividly and vigorously Jesus rejects Peter's longing for safety and avoidance and withdrawal. Jesus knows he must face the coming battle. That it cannot and should not ever happen. Jesus dismisses that. It must happen. That's why he has come. He has come for this battle. To put to death 
the power of sin and the power of death forever. And so Peter's suggestion that Jesus avoid conflict shows that Peter is thinking God is not thinking God's thoughts after him, but instead Peter is focused on human thoughts. Thoughts of self-interest and self-affirmation and self-preservation. Thoughts that you and I have every single day of our lives, right? We think about ourselves so often. Jesus continued, and he said to the disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, anyone, whoever wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so now it's Jesus' turn to hit us right between the eyes. He puts it out there, right in front of Peter, right in front of the disciples, right in front of you, right in front of me, whoever would follow him. Saving life means losing life. Losing life means finding life. Our ultimate goal in this life is not to save our lives or to put a force field around them. When you and I have that as a goal for ourselves, when we have that as a goal for those we love, we make the wrong kind of decisions. We run to the mountaintop. Or at least we run to the safety of the shelf. And we attempt to put that force field around us and around those we love. We run from the battle instead of engaging in it. And when life happens to us, When it comes, when it hits us in the eye, when we're simply attempting to mind our own business, only then will we act. But this is all out of accord with the call of Jesus. Jesus calls us to act. Let go of your life. Pick up your cross. Follow me. This is battle language. Because Jesus is calling all of us to actively kill a way of life that seeks first self-service and self-comfort and self-preservation. Kill it. Crucify it. And we have to fight that battle all the time. We have to fight to follow Christ. But the battle is worth it because real life is found in Christ the best life, the fullest life, serving Jesus and serving others for Jesus' sake. So here's the question. What are you saving or preserving your life for anyway? All of us have to answer that question. What are we trying to save and preserve our lives for anyway? If we could successfully put a force field around ourselves and around those we love, what's the ultimate purpose in doing that? Just to be safe? Well, what are we trying to be safe for? Just so we can keep on living? Well, what are we living for? To be safe in that force field? Listen, I don't have a problem for this for myself, but for my children, all of my children are sitting here right now thinking, what alien 
has invaded our Father's body and are saying these words. Because I would keep all of us in a little tiny room together all the time. And they know that's true. But it's not right. So I release you, children. <laughs> not really. Yes, I do. No, yes, yes, I do. I do, I do. But here's the good news of Moses' blessing on Benjamin. It's in the battle that he will experience the presence of God. It's in the battle that God is going to be Benjamin's shield. It's in the battle that God's going to be Benjamin's rest and his security. It's in the battle that God is going to carry Benjamin on his back. And Benjamin's going to rest between his shoulders. So all this doesn't mean that we're never going to suffer. That certainly is not what it meant for Jesus, right? Not just the cross, but his entire life was a life of suffering. When you compare this life on earth to the life of glory and perfection that he had known in heaven from all eternity past. The battle for Jesus certainly didn't mean he would not die physically. We know that he did die in battle. But engaging in battle means that we will experience real life. Exciting life. Because we are living this life for Christ and with Christ. Accomplishing his will and building his kingdom in this world. And it doesn't get any better than that. And so you and I need to engage and we need to be intentional warriors. Let's dwell between our weapons But let's do this as well. We need to define the battle. Where is the battle? Where's the enemy? If we don't define what the battle is, if it's this nebulous thing, it'll just keep hitting us in the eye. And so I want us to do this. I want us to look at one passage of Scripture that defines the battle for us, not in its entirety, but this passage will will give us plenty that we need to keep our weapons sharp and keep using them. So if you will turn in the New Testament... To 1 Timothy chapter 1. So here's your mental break. Everybody take a mental break. And turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. To encourage him to keep on fighting. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3. Paul writes, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. So here's a battle for all of us. And the battle is for truth. And we know the culture in which we live. And we know that the culture makes us doubt that this is truth. And our culture makes compelling arguments for why you and I should doubt that this is the truth of God. And so we keep fighting. We keep studying the truth. We keep knowing the heart of God. We keep coming back. We will fight for truth. Plenty in our culture says there's no truth at all. Now for that argument, it's, it's not very compelling. But listen. 
the lifestyle that results from that belief. It's pretty cool, right? Because if there's no truth, you can live how you want to live. And so it's worth saying, oh, there's no truth. Just so you can live the way you want to do, the way you want to live. So we got to keep fighting. we got to keep fighting for truth. Look in verse 5. Paul continues. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we have a battle for truth. And here we have a battle for love. Sincere love. Authentic love. Look, the, Lord, the, the world does not need any more fake Christians, right? They don't need our fake love that's emanating from behind a fake smile. They do not need that. What the world needs from us is authentic, genuine, sincere love. And if we're going to have that kind of love, we're going to have to fight for it. We're going to have to demonstrate authentic love in this world to individuals and to groups of people whose behavior frustrates us, whose behavior disgusts us, whose behavior sometimes makes us very fearful. We are called to love those people authentically. So we have a battle for truth. We have a battle for love. Paul continues verse 8. We know that the law is good. If one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and the rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for, every, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel. Concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And so here is another battle. And this battle is the battle that you and I face to live rightly. To live our our lives in a way that pleases God and that models the life of Christ. Too much in our world mitigates against holiness. I'm telling you. Holiness is becoming a relic of the past. It's a way we think that our grandparents or our great-grandparents lived. Their lives with their charming and quaint moral values that were completely disconnected from reality. Oh, you had to have a chaperone when you went on a date. How cute is that? Exactly what is wrong with a chaperone, right? What, what will a chaperone prevent you from? Okay, you get, but no, we say that that is wrong. We say that that is disconnected. And this is what people in the church believe. So disconnected are we from the thought of living a holy life before the Lord. So we have to fight for truth. We have to fight for genuine love. And we have to fight this battle of living a life of holiness before the Lord. Let's keep going. Verse 13, Paul writes, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. 
For that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And so here's another battle for you, all of you. You've got to get over your past. You've got to get over the guilt of your past that would crush you, that may be now crushing you and rendering you ineffective. You've got to fight not to be drawn back into that. That is no longer who you are. Accept what Christ has done for you and fight for your identity in Christ. You are a son. You are a daughter of the living God. Fight for that identity. Keep going. Last one. Verse 18. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command and keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. The ESV says, wage the good warfare. The NAS says, fight the good fight. The New Living says, fight well in the Lord's battle. And so we come back once again to the fight for faith. Don't let go of faith. Don't let go of it for yourself. Don't let go of it for others. Keep your faith afloat. Fight for it. Don't allow it to be shipwrecked. Keep on believing. Put yourself in places that encourage you to keep believing. Put yourself in the midst of people who encourage you to keep believing. Now these verses from Timothy, they're enough to show us that we're in a battle and that we must be intentional warriors, right? As we fight for the truth and fight for love and fight for holiness and fight for our identity in Christ and fight for our faith. There are many more battles. And some of you here are fighting those battles right now. You're fighting battles at home. You're fighting battles at work. And so the blessing of Benjamin comes to us as a blessing as well. We do not fight alone. You do not fight alone. In the midst of every one of these battles, the Lord is with us and the Lord is for us. And he draws near us to protect us as we fight these battles for ourselves and to advance his kingdom, he carries us right between his shoulders. So let's fight the good fight. Let's not be helpless victims. We are not called to live only reacting to life as it happens to us while we're walking along, minding our business, and life comes and hits us in the eye. We're called to engage in life, not retreat from it. We're called to lose our lives, not attempt to protect them out of fear of harm of the battle. Our security is found. Our peace is found. Not when we are attempting to manufacture it, but instead when we are engaging in battle for the Lord. So, as intentional warriors... Let's fight the good fight of faith. Let's pray. Father, 
thank you again for your word. What a beautiful blessing, Lord, it is for us to read. Again, how unexpected it is for us to read. We think that the battle is the last place where there's security. We believe the battle is the last place where there is safety. And because we believe those wrong things, Lord, we flee from the battle. But I pray that you would remind us this morning that you are our omnipotent, all-powerful God. And that we would model our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the way we live our lives. The one who did not flinch. The one who did not turn away from the battle. The one who set his face like flint with resolve to face that battle. The one who went to the cross to do that battle and to defeat sin and death forever. Lord, may we model our life after you, not afraid of the battle. Father, give us courage to lose our lives for your sake, to just experience the release of letting go, saying, Lord, you've got this, you've got me. And so I lose my life so that I may find it in you. Lord, it takes courage to do this. So we ask that your spirit would embolden us and give us the courage to obey you. To let go of our lives, to lose them for your sake, to take up our cross and to follow you. And to fight the good fight of faith as we follow you and as you lead on, O King Eternal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.